So we are continuing our series in the book of Psalms. We looked at Psalm 19 last week. It was a beautiful psalm where we said through nature we can know God in a general sense. Uh, through scripture we can know God specifically. And so we said that scripture is powerful, it is perfect, it is sufficient, it is sure. We can know really everything that we need to know about God and about life. We talked about how encouraging that is. And I believe that from the bottom of my, of my heart, I really believe that the word of God is sufficient and is true and trustworthy. And it's not just during times of, 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 of rejoicing, times of gladness, but it's also during times of trouble and confusion in which the word of God brings clarity. I don't know about you, but when I heard last week on Tuesday about the news, about the shooting that took place in, in Texas in an elementary school, there was an 18-year-old gunman who who walked into an elementary school, a fourth-grade classroom, uh, after killing his own grandmother, walks into this classroom, kills 19 children, two adults, two teachers, and 27 people were injured, and who knows what more damage was caused. People are still investigating the situation. This is um, the third deadliest shooting that took place in, at school. Number one is the shooting that took place at VTech in 2007, which some of you might be familiar, familiar with. And this just happened 10 days after the shooting that took place in Buffalo at a local supermarket. Literally, someone just opened fire uh, in the parking lot and then inside of the supermarket. And you hear news is like this, and you, you see the pictures and all that's going on. And people are very, very quick to give an opinion, to point fingers at, at who false it is and try to see what we can change. Some people say we need to change the law. Some people say that we need to change the system to have a better system to protect uh, these children, whether it's school, law enforcement. Some people say, no, we need to equip our, our families because it's the family that's failing. Some people say we need to address mental illness. And I think a lot of that is true, but no one is saying it's the kid's fault. Did you notice that? No one on the news, no one on the media, no one on social media is saying, well, it's the kid's fault that they were there in the wrong place, that they couldn't have defended them themselves. Something in us tells us that, that that's wrong, that something is not right with this incident. And this is just an isolated incident, right? We have a lot more incidents like this just the past month. You think about the war that's continuing in, in Ukraine. You think about the other issues that, that are happening in the world with poverty, with, with orphans, with injustice. It's just all over the place. I mean, if you think America is bad, America is the strongest nation in the world, the wealthiest nation in the world, and you feel like we have a lot of problems, just imagine how it's like outside of the country. Like how people are being abused, people who are helpless, people have, have no power. And the question is, why? Why is the world like this? Like, how do we make sense of this when we believe in a good God? That's the question that comes to our mind. I mean, we believe that God is love, God is true, and we believe that his word is sufficient, but what, how do we make sense of, of this situation? And, and I thank God that, that we have Psalms like Psalm 10 that gives us perspective on how to understand our current situation, to how to understand our problems, and also how, how, to, how to pray in the midst of all our troubles and trials. Because if you look at Psalm 10, it almost feels like it was written yesterday. It feels like, you know, 
the psalmist was looking at America and writing this psalm. Psalm 10 is full of pain. It's full of, of anger, frustration, disappointment, confusion. And really, it's all kind of boiled into verse 1. It says this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So that's the question that the psalmist is trying to address in today's passage. Looking at this world, looking at how evil this world is, how fallen this world is, looking at all the brokenness of this world and looking at how it seems like God is far away, how absent he is, the psalmist is asking the question, God, where are you in the midst of our troubles? Where are you in the midst of all that's going on in our society? And so there are two things that the psalmist highlights in, in this psalm. I encourage you to write this down if you can. Um, number one is this. The psalmist addresses the reality of evil. The reality of evil. From verse 2 to 11 is simply the psalmist describing us what it looks like to live in the reality of evil. He gives us a painful picture of what it means to live among the wicked. So Notice verse 2, it says this, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. So we have people, the wicked, they're called the wicked, and they're pursuing the poor, not because they want to help the poor, they want to abuse the poor. So we see people are, are violent in their actions, but look at verse 7, it says, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, meaning his tongue is full of trouble and evil. So not only do we see violence in, and deception in, in the actions, but we also see it in the speech of these people, these quote-unquote people who are called wicked. And it says in verse 8, we get a vivid description of what they do. It says, he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent, his eyes steadily watch for the helpless, he lurks in ambush like a lion in its thicket, he lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. So this picture, like a lion is, is praying, like trying to take advantage of this, this weaker animal. You kind of have a picture how these wicked people are trying to take advantage of those who are powerless, those who are vulnerable, those who are helpless, those who are poor and innocent. And that's the picture that we have. And this is not a foreign idea. To, to our current world, right? This idea where the power, uh, whoever has power is able to abuse that power, to take advantage of the power list. And this begs the question, why? Why would people actually do that? Why would people in power actually abuse their power rather than use their power for, their, for the good of society? Why would people go out their way to, to, to mistreat people, to hate on people, to... to to deceive people so that they can earn things. Well, the psalmist gives us three things, three reasons why the wicked people are driven to do what they do. To, to, they're driven to do injustice. Th three reasons. Number one, arrogance and pride. Arrogance and pride, it's kind of the same idea. We see that in verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. So it is in arrogance. What arrogance is, what pride is, it's simply this you think you're better than other people um, based on your social class, based on where you live, based on how much education that you have. You think highly of yourself to the point that you feel like other people are below you. 
you feel like other people are, you can just easily mistreat them, abuse them simply you, because you have power. And what the Bible says is every human being is created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, meaning every human being has this incredible value. Although you, they might be in a different social class, they might have a different job, that you treat them in a way that God will treat them, that you treat them with dignity and respect. Because at the end of the day, we are all God's creation. And yet, when you walk in arrogance and pride, you are disregarding that whole design. You are simply saying that I am better than someone else. And you might think to yourself, well, I don't really do that. But what, what goes to your mind when you see someone on the street and, and that person is asking for help? Like, is the first thought, man, like, I really need to help that person, or I wonder what really happened in that person's life, or is your first thought, is that person lazy? Is that person not doing their job? When you think about these countries uh, outside of the U.S., maybe you visited them, maybe you heard about them, and you think, man, I wonder what it's like to live under oppression. I wonder what it's like to live in North Korea. I'm so glad that, that I live in America, the greatest country of the world. In different levels, we might not take it into action, but deep down inside, I think we do have this, this, this desire to be superior than others. So arrogance, pride, is something that we see in the wicked heart. Number two is this, greed. Greed. Look at verse three. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. So the reason why the wicked are driven to abuse and, and mistreat the, the poor and the needy and, and the helpless is because they are driven by greed. What they see is their own needs. What they see is their own desires. They don't care about what other people think. They don't care about what other people need. All they care about is what they have in their possession, and they want more. And so it doesn't matter what, how, uh, how they treat other people as long as they can get what they want. And so we see that greed is, is the factor that's driving their heart, that they're ignoring other people. They are, are misusing and mistreating other people because all they care about is what they can get, their own desires. And not only are they ignoring the needs of others, they are ignoring God. And that is the foundational issue when it comes to wickedness. It says the, in, in verse 3, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In other words, the one who is wicked in the heart ultimately rejects the Lord. The reason why they are doing all these things, they are operating under pride, under arrogance, under greed, is simply because they have no room for God in their heart and in their mind. The absence of God is the foundational problem that, that's causing all this wickedness in their life. Uh, and look at verse 4. It says this, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him, God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So it's not just in their actions, but in their thoughts. There's no room for God. They don't even think about God. And so because they have no fear for God, they don't care about God's design or how God thinks of people, how God thinks of society, they simply say, well, I can do what I want to do. I can abuse my power. I can use my powers to gain what I want. So the weak, the vulnerable suffers. But we see in verse 5, the real issue is that the wicked prospers. That's why the psalmist is, is confused. 
Because if God is alive and he is real, in his mind, like, this doesn't make sense. Like, how can the wicked get away with this? How can they prosper? And if you think about the people who are in power, a lot of times you hear all these scandals, the things that go on, go, go on behind the scenes, and you question, I mean, how can they live such a life and be in position of power, right? It says in verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgment are on high, out of sight, so they don't care about God's judgment. They don't even look at God. As for all his foes, he puffs at them, so he's really prideful. Uh, he feels superior over all things. He feels so superior. It says in verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. No one can even touch me with my power. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And so this is how confident this person is because he is confident that God is not alive, that God is not real. Or if he's alive, he's definitely far, far away. So the wicked enjoys the prosperity, the power that they have, and they, he uses that prosperity and power in verse 10 to crush the helpless, to sink them down, and they fall by his might. And in response to this, he doesn't feel guilty or bad. It says in verse 11, the wicked says, God has forgotten he has hidden his face. He will never see it. I can get away with this. And so this, this psalm that was written thousands of years before, like, again, it, it feels like it was written yesterday. Why? Because although culture has changed, people have changed, the foundational problem of society is still the same. It's that we have no room for God. And that's the foundational issue that we struggle with in our society in our hearts, that is the root of all evil and wickedness. The ab absence of God, the lack of fear for God, rejecting God and rebelling against God. And that is the reality of evil. But the second reality we see in the psalm is this. Although we see this, this sick, this, this, this really problematic reality of evil, the second thing that we see is this, the reality of God. The reality of God. Look at verse 12. It says this. Now, all of a sudden, the tone changes. It says, arise, O Lord. Before, he was, the psalmist was kind of looking for God, but it's ironic because now he's crying out to God, right? Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. So he's praying to God, asking God to help the afflicted. It says in verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. Now, the psalmist still has this question that he asked in verse 1. That why question. Why do we see so much evil in society? Why do we see so much brokenness in, in our world? That question is still unanswered to the psalmist. He still doesn't know why. And he never gets the answer, at least in this psalm. You think about the story of Job, how a righteous man could suffer. Like even for Job, he was struggling with this idea. I mean, I feel like I did everything right. I feel like I honored God, and yet there's suffering. Things are being taken away from him, and he's really confused. His, his friends are not helping him because they're giving bad advice. And at the end of the day, the question why, why does Joe have to suffer although he was righteous, the Bible does not answer. But the Bible does say, well, in the midst of that suffering, let me tell you what God is like. Job, let me remind you who God is. In the same way, I think in this psalm, the psalmist is reminded of who God is. Look at verse 14. The psalmist says, but you, God, you do see. For you know mischief and vexation, so you are aware of it. That you may take it into your hands. 
to you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So the psalmist up to this point thought God was this, this far away, disregarding all the needs of the fatherless and the helpless. And yet the psalmist says, at the end of the day, when I look at it, the only one who's really helping the fatherless and the helpless is actually God. Like, God, and you see, you know, and not only that, but you're acting upon their needs. Like, God, that's who you are. And reminding himself of God's character and his works and who he is, the psalmist has two pleas. Number one is this. He says, bring justice to those who do evil. Like it says in verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evil doer. Call his wickedness to account till you find None. Now, you might think, okay, that's kind of extreme, but did you know that God hates sin? And when he sees evil, this is how he feels. Like a just God, when he sees something that, that is unjust, like this is how he feels. So the psalmist is, is speaking this in, in line of God's character of justice. He's saying that God punish them, give them what they, 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 that the right punishment for what they have done. Like, bring justice to this situation. Like, he's praying against these people who are doing wicked, wicked things. And why does he do this? Why is he able to tell God to, to punish the people who are wicked? Well, he believes firmly that God, at the end of the day, is Lord and King. He says in verse 16, The Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. At the end of the day, we know in history, evil and hatred... And injustice will not have the final word in history. We know that God will have the final word. And he will make all things that are wrong right. That he will bring justice to those who rebel against him. Remember, when you think about injustice, before it's an offense against other people, it's first an offense against God. Any situation of injustice, it's tied with the character and the, the, the creation of God. And so it's offense against God. And God himself takes this personally. He's going to do something about it. That's why it says in Romans 12, God says, vengeance is mine. The reason why he says vengeance is mine, by the way, he tells us not to take personal vengeance, is, not, is, is because he knows that he can bring perfect, perfect justice to a situation. If you think about it, if someone comes into my household and kills my family. I will want justice. I will want that person either to, 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 to be put to a life sentence or something. I will want that person to be punished. But would that bring justice to my heart? Would that make what was wronged right? Probably not. Like, it might make me feel better. But that doesn't bring back my wife. That doesn't bring back my kid. And what God is saying is this. Like, the reason why you shouldn't take personal vengeance on your own is because you can't make what's wrong right. You can, you can try, but ultimately, that area belongs to me. Now, he says in Romans 13 that as a, the government, as society, we should create a system that has a center of right and wrong so that people who want to do wicked things, who want to do evil, should be afraid to do that. That's why we have the law. Like, it's, it's not... Like, one reason is to give the just punishment to, to criminals, but at the same time, it's so that it would install fear in people so that people will not do what's wrong. That's the whole point of Romans 13. In the meantime, who brings true justice? God. God, he's the one who brings true justice because he is the ultimate king. 
But also on the other side of justice, notice this. God doesn't only go after the wicked people. He goes after those who are mistreated and abused. It says in verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen the heart, uh, their heart. You will incline uh, your ear to them to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So God says, as much as I'm going to go after those who do evil, I'm going to go after those who are being mistreated and abused. I'm going to care for them. I'm going to meet their needs. There's two sides to justice. Number one is to punish the wicked, but also it's to help the poor, the needy, the helpless. I think so often we are so fixated on this one side that that we want to have an opinion on what should happen instead of really meeting the needs of people who are hurting, people who don't have a voice, people who are out of power, like people are neglected by society. I think a lot of times when we think about justice, we just think one side of the equation. When God, he's like, I, I see both. That's how you, you practice biblical justice. You, you stand for what is right. At the same time, you care for those who are broken and hurt. So how can we apply a text like this? I just want to give you three pointers. Number one is this. Before you jump to the conclusion that there are a lot of wicked people in society, I think it's important that we check our hearts first. And I'm sure a lot of you have never went to the extreme to kill someone, to do something that was that bad, maybe that you see on the news or that's described here. But if you think about the intentions, think about what's driving the wicked, violent actions and deceitful actions, you'll notice that we have that same danger inside of us, that inside of us we have this thing called pride. Inside of us, we have this thing called arrogance. Inside of us, we have this thing called greed, that we want more stuff, that we have this tendency to be self-centered rather than to be selfless and and sacrificial. That's our tendency. And if you are given an opportunity, there's a good chance that you might jump on that opportunity, that you might abuse someone someone else. Um, One example I can give you, uh, maybe for our youth, uh, this could be a future reality, but if you invest in stocks, what investing in stocks is, you are using your money to support a certain company, and based on their growth, that you get to earn a profit by sim- your f- simple investment. Have you looked into the company that you actually invest in? Because when you are investing stocks, you're not just trying to make money; you're actually supporting that specific com- company. And and if you hear that you can double, triple down the road through your investment, and but at the same time, you know that there's some stuff that are n- ungodly. Will you still support that company? That's a tough question. That's a tough question because what's on the line is your profit and also what's right in God's eyes. But what the Bible is telling us is that even if it costs us, even if we have to invest in a stock that's more uncertain, a company that's less stable, no, you, you stand for what is right. You don't support evil. Another reason why we know that we can jump on this bandwagon of wickedness is, is this. I think the internet is a very clear place that tells us that if a given opportunity, we can be really wicked people. Like the things that you never say in your friend's face. If you are able to hide your identity, you can easily say things, hurtful things, deceitful things. Maybe you might not go somewhere physically and commit adultery or or abuse someone sexually, but you're totally fine going online, like enjoying something that's, that, that def- defiles the d- 
design of marriage and defiles God's design of, of, of sexuality, and you're completely fine with that. Why? Because no one's going to know, which means if there's a given opportunity, you have the potential to actually do something for your own sake. Why? Because there's this thing called sin inside of you and me, sinful nature, where we are gravitating towards our own needs and our own wants. We have this selfish desire to, to think of more of us and less of others and less of God. And we see the only way that we can move away from this type of mindset is to be filled with God. If the problem, the root problem is that we don't have any room for God in our minds and our hearts, then we have to make room for God in our hearts and our minds. That we have to be full of God, full of His Spirit, full of His Son. If you think about it, uh, why do you actually feel bad about what happened on Tuesday with children dying in such a tragic way? Why is that a tragedy? If you believe in evolution, that's not a tragedy. That's survival of the fittest, right? Like, our society, if it's based on evolution, the principles of evolution, it tells you that the people in power should abuse the people who are powerless. It's telling you the people who have authority should go after the people who are poor. That's the survival of the fit, the very principle that makes evolution make sense. But for some reason, even if you're not a Christian, deep down in your heart, something cries out to you when someone is mis treated and abused, especially someone who is powerless and helpless, something inside of you cries out, that is not right. Do you know what that, why that's the case? Because this world was not created by evolution. This world was created by a perfect creator, by God. And he's a God of justice, and he created you in his image, and he desires justice. When he sees something that's unjust, that's the response that he has. He is sickened to his heart. So when we practice justice. It's not because we simply feel bad. It's simply because we are full of God, and we want to align our will and our ways with God. So examine your heart. Number two, how do we respond to a text like this? If you have been mistreated on a personal level, I think bullying could be also a form of this too, right? Someone abusing power. Um, maybe your parents, they misuse their authority over you. They, they misuse their position over you. I want you to know, based on the Bible today, that there's one person that you can always trust when the world falls apart, when the world is trying to take advantage of you. There's one person that's saying, no, I'm not going to take advantage of you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be there for you. And that's why you see in today's text that the fatherless is clinging on to God, that the helpless is finding refuge in God. Like, the only hope that they have in this situation is that there's still a God who's ultimately going to bring justice, who's going to judge the living and the dead, meaning that he's going to do what is right, ultimately. And that's the hope that we have. That's why we can still breathe and move on and still be hopeful for the future. It's because we know that God is there for those who are oppressed, those who are mistreated and abused. Unlike people in power of this world, God, although he has all the power in the world, he doesn't use that power to mistreat you or abuse you. He uses that power to save you. You know, I don't know exactly why Joseph was bullied by his brothers to the point where he was thrown into this pit and he was, he, they sold him as a, as a slave and he ended up in jail. I don't know why all that happened. The Bible says that just happened. I don't know why the Israelites, although all they did was, based on Joseph, they, they settled in the land of Egypt. I don't know why they end up as slaves and they were oppressed for s such a long time. I don't know why David 
had to run for his life against Saul, his father-in-law, and the king. Like, that was an abuse of power. Like, throughout the Bible, we see people in power abusing people who are powerless. But in those stories, who's the one who's helping the powerless? It's God. And that's why Joseph says to his brothers later on, what you meant for evil, God turned it into good. Like, the one person who was with me through all this is God. And we don't know exactly till this day why God worked in that specific way, but we do know through the faithfulness of God and through the obedience of Joseph that the nation of Israel was able to live and the surrounding nations. We also know that in Exodus 2, it tells us that when people are crying out to the Lord, it was God who heard the cries of his people. And so we don't know exactly why it was that long that they were in Egypt, but we do know that God was the one who saved them, who freed them from the oppression of slavery. We also know that although David had to run for his life for a period of time, God was the one who anointed him. God was the one who made him king. God was the one who worked through him. And he gave him the heart to actually forgive the family of Saul. Like, I don't know exactly why all this happened, but I do know that God was working in each situation. Charles Spurgeon, a very famous uh, pastor, says this, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when you can't trace his hand, you must trust his heart. When you can't see the work of God's hands in your life, in society, what God is telling you is this, you can trust my heart. You can trust my character right now. A lot of things don't make sense, the things that happened in your life and the things that happened around you. However, God is too wise to make a mistake. He's too good to abuse other people. And so trust his heart when you can't see his hand. Trust his character. The last thing I want to point out is this. The last way you can apply this text. Um, A lot of times when we hear news like this and we look at issues of injustice, I think our natural reaction is, is this. Oh, man, I f- really feel bad for those people. I feel terrible for those people. Sympathy, a sense of guilt, too. I feel like, you know, I, I'm privileged in this position, uh, and so I have to help other people. But let me tell you, uh, sympathy, guilt, those things, those, those, those things are okay, but they do not last. So if your sole motivation to help others is sympathy and guilt, most likely, you're not going to help others in the way that they really need help. If you really want to make a difference in your life, in the people around you, if you want to practice biblical justice, what the Bible says is this. Your motivation is not sympathy or guilt. Your motivation is God and the gospel. Why? Because the gospel tells you, the life of Jesus tells you that we were broke, spiritually broke in our sin. Spiritually, we were fatherless in our sin. Spiritually, we were helpless, doomed in our sin. Like, we were people who are in need of help. And God, having all the power, having all the wealth, did not ignore our problem, but he sent Jesus. That Jesus, who was rich, became poor. It actually says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Jesus was rich, yet for your sake, He became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus literally became poor so that we could be rich. On the cross, Jesus, he lost his father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the eternal son, why was he separated from the eternal father? 
Why we, did he become fatherless? It's because he was dying on behalf of people who were fatherless in their sin. And what he did was he understood that we were oppressed under Satan, under sin, that we were in bondage. And he didn't just leave us in our bondage. Instead, he came and made a difference for us. He made a sacrifice for us. He paid the price for us. And that was an act of mercy, grace, but also justice. That, that, that this general gest- generous gesture of, 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 of justice, uh, God taking care of the helpless. And so how do we respond to this? Next time you see someone in need, someone who really needs help, I think you'll look at that person differently. Not just because you feel bad about that person. Number one, that you hopefully that you look at that person in the lens of God. Uh, see that the person is a beautiful creation of God. But number two, your motivation even like would be the gospel. And if it's the gospel, you wouldn't just look into your wallet, just give a couple bucks. What you say is this. Instead of calculating the cost, like no matter what the cost is, I just want to help this person. No matter what the cost is, I want to make a difference in this person's life. Why? Because Jesus, he didn't throw a couple dollars to save my life. He gave everything to save me. And if I'm the recipient of that grace, then I can extend grace and mercy to those who are in need. My drive is that I want to be more like Jesus because he saved me. My drive is that my God, my Father, is driven to take care of the poor, the needy, and I want to be the same. So make God the reason you exercise justice. Nothing more, nothing less. Let's pray.